Welcome to Tilt Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking when will your corn be ready. In our spotlight, we're going to take a look at the Case IH Trident 5550, an er, autonomous spreading unit. We'll do a GDU update, and then we'll wrap things up with some cool beans, and that's corny and current events. With me today are Bill Schomburg. Hey, guys. Max Garvey. What's up, everybody? Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilties out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So you didn't go out and shoot any geese this morning, Max? No. Didn't, couldn't get her done today. Too busy, man. Is opening day of goose season like yep. as good as opening day? It's 364 more else? days till opening day <laughs> of goose, goose season. season. Nah, opening day of goose season is usually really frustrating. Because <laughs> you can't find any geese? Or? Well, there's like you start with limited fields, right? Because... They're not. They don't land in hay a whole lot. I mean, not as much. They like wheat, but most of the wheat around here has been worked and covered in manure. They don't love that, and there's no corn off yet. So you're kind of, kind of limited. How so. long is goose season? Uh, a long time. Because yeah, you got most. Of, yeah, you till get October or something, right? It's no, it's into December for geese. But you get early season is the first to the fifteenth of September. Okay, and you can shoot five, and then. Late season runs from the 16th of September through December, and you can shoot three per person per day. Okay. Per person per day. Per person per day. But you can only have, and I don't want to give the wrong rules here, but you can only have so many in your possession. So, like, they would come to your house and find, like, I think you can have two days bag limit in your house. So, like, late season, you can have six six birds worth, which would be 12 breasts in your freezer. Mm. If they come and there's 20 breasts, that's not good. Technically, they can write you a ticket. So, so you just got to eat them. You do have to eat them, yeah. Are they good? They're fine. So you have to moderate your your breast intake. <laughs> yes. To make sure they're but. fine. <laughs> I'll say, I I'll tell you what. I've seen guys breast a goose out and go, "That looks just like a steak." Slap around the grill. Not the way to go. Do not. That is Feel not. Like I was dry that out pretty yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah, that's. I'm just picturing the we'll turkey think, on National Lampoon's uh, Chevy Chase. At least wrapper and bacon maybe. or something. Think about it. Like that's the biggest muscle on a on a goose, and, and, and they fly those, thousands of miles. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's you wouldn't you wouldn't eat the very bottom leg muscle on a cow like that either because it sucks because it's the muscle that gets used all the time, right? So yeah, guys, the guys who just. Cut them out, slap them on the grill with no marinade, no tenderizing, no nothing. Oof. Brave souls, man. Of uh, the hunters we run into, like, goose hunters are usually very nice, but, man, can you come up and not... Like, not find them right away? Right. Yeah. Like, you all of a sudden are driving the four-wheeler up over a harvested sneaky. field, and then you're like, oh, there's a big patch of geese there, and you get closer, and you're like, oh, these geese fake. aren't flying away. They're decoys. And then somebody pops out of like a, yeah, they're laying in like a corn coffin looking thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice layout blind. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit, I almost, yeah, like you're right up on them. It's, yeah, it is wild. Yeah. Whereas like bow hunters, when they're, you can usually see their truck. They're usually the meanest if you mess something up for deer bow. Generally, goose hunters, though, will, will also ask. Like, I've had them ask me for permission. It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> this isn't my field. Like, Wrong I guy. Give you, <laughs> I cannot give you permission. But goose season for me usually signals the start of probably my favorite season, which is fall. So I'm big time on that. Temperature-wise, we have not reached fall yet, but... This morning, I saw almost my, kind of felt like it. The, the lows have been <laughs> the, the lows like are down the lows there, are good, but, but the highs are still the, high. We're going, yeah, we're going to hit almost ninety today. So yeah, that's and, and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's I have seen my first pumpkin whatever commercial though. So oh yep, pumpkin spice. It was this was pumpkin cream something at Dunkin' Donuts. That's what I saw. The fall flavor of milk was released at Quick Trip. It was maple, not pumpkin. Maple. Yeah. Yep, not pumpkin, but the fall flavor, maple. Yeah, I did see it. That. I have not, not. not I don't know. If, I'm fake maple flavor. It can be one of the worst things on the planet in my mind. Yeah, if, if it's if it's a good maple flavor and milk, I could see that going together fine because maple syrup on ice cream or you yeah, know, you know, it's not like it's totally out of the realm of possibility. But the fake maple that like burns your throat because it's so sweet. Like you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. 
burns your throat is not the perfect way to describe it, but I can get my point across here. So yeah, we'll have to try it. I mean, come on, you got to try seasonal milks at least once. Even the ones I don't like, I drink one. I pretty much exclusively use homemade maple syrup, so it's weird when I get like store bought stuff. Because yeah, it's like oh, oh yeah, yeah. This is this is that maple syrup. It's funny is all the things I like out of the woods and hungry jack buttery syrup <laughs> is by far my favorite. <laughs> like homemade maple syrup, I was like, oh thanks. It's fine. It's not bad. I just wow. You you don't know what you're missing. I I eat plenty of it because everybody thinks like, oh, you're a woods guy. You must right. like homemade maple syrup, right? Like, and it's fine. I don't dislike it. I just it's dude, so the, much better. Than the the, the fake chemicals, man. They just they get the juices going. Yeah. So you just like to drink caro syrup, then, yeah, basically. Well, okay. So I've also found this out. Apparently, this isn't a thing that happens in other families, but we do buckwheat pancakes in the winter with caro syrup. With carol syrup. Yeah, no, that's a thing. Yes, you do white brown. So you do a three stack of pancakes. It's brown, white, brown. And you put different syrup in between each one. It's not a part of our family. Like when my no. dad was growing up. No. They, they had thing. so much maple syrup that that was like a relief to use carol syrup. Right. It was like, ooh, I can have something different. So when they would do the buckwheat pancakes with carol. We're, but we're boring to No, we just said like the, remember the yep. dime. They were like silver dollar, silver dollar, dollar pancakes. pancakes. Our grandpa would make the perfect yeah, silver dollar pancakes. So I've never seen my grandma make a regular pancake in my life, ever. But buckwheat pancakes in the winter, and you keep a starter in the garage so it stays cool, and then she brings it in the house at night to rise. Like, it's a process. Like, it's not this. She's not buying the, the pre-made buckwheat pancake mix. Just add, you know, milk, eggs, oil. This is she like a... water, man. This is, no, no, no. This is like a process, right? You got to call ahead, man. Two days. You got to be on it. Wow. Can you use regular syrup on buckwheat pancakes? Yes. You do brown, white, brown. So it's log cabin brown uh-huh, on the yeah. top. Then you do caro in the middle. And then you do log cabin brown on the bottom again. But yeah, you could use it. Just Yeah. Just That's way too syrup. much thought. Dude, I have, this, I have the buckwheat pancake eating. It's down to a science. It's like, it's a lot of practice though. Because you only get them for like, a month a year usually it's got to be the right timing where it's not you know it's got to be cool enough at in the garage that the they can keep but not so cold that they're gonna freeze and there's like some stuff like that so when the you got to get when the getting's good man so you got to go you got to go three four mornings a week it does feel like falls officially here though like even though i know summer starts like june 20th something and then is done september 20th it always feels like when school starts and football's back, like it's fall. Like you might as well say it is fall. Yeah, you guys. Big, it may not feel like summer. It's a good thing there's college football because the NFL season is weird this year because there's not actually a game where it starts like for ten more days. Well, yeah, because they didn't want to start on Labor Day weekend, which I thought was weird. I mean, they could compete with anything they want. Is the first game a week next week Thursday? No, no. it's Sunday. Thursday night football plays on Sunday night. Ah. <laughs> so it's all on September 11th. Sure. There'll be some Monday. There'll right. be a Monday right. game. But it's but it's, yeah, the season starts the 11th. Yes, the season starts the 11th. I don't think there's any games before the 11th, which for, is weird. For fantasy football drafts, that's Ooh, there's right. like a way bigger window, which seems weird. Right, it's a huge window for that. Today was a big day for you guys, right? First day of school. We sent our kids back. Yep, yeah, kids are in school. Houses are quiet. They'll be cleaner. They will be clean. The grocery bill will go down. Oh my god! Uh, not necessarily. My mom and dad always said the grocery bill went down pretty oh, drastically yeah. when we went back to school. <laughs> well, yeah. Was odd through COVID. They no, I guess there is a Thursday night game. Bill nine eight. Yep. September Bills Rams. Ooh, that's a good game. Bills Rams. Bills Rams. Ooh, could Your be Rams. a Super Bowl preview. Like yep. la- like last year when school was going on. Or was it the last two years for COVID? They didn't. You didn't have to pay for school lunch, right, Max? So like, think of that. Yeah, like, last two years, right? So like, since COVID, they weren't charging for school lunch. But this year, it's back. It's that back would just on. be nice. Not not. Back. My parents never had a hard time affording school lunch for us. It was remembering to send a check with us to school yeah. and hoping that we got the check to the it's, right place. It's all now you do it online. Yeah, it's all okay, online. well, you know what? I didn't go to school in these fancy times. Okay? Guess what school lunch is up to, Max? It's like six bucks? No. No, half no. that. No. It's like three? Two, something, three. It was yeah, two something. 280 or something. See, we were, we were two 
and then it was two fifty if you wanted a mega meal, which was double portion of the main. So wow. Extra fifty cents. Meal, you had like a super size. Yeah, so instead of five nuggets, you got ten. I don't like there's. I don't think there was anything at school that I would have wanted more of. I don't know. Would have been pretty rare. I don't. I don't know how many childhood obesity. I don't know. Like I don't know how many hot lunches I ate. It wasn't many. No, not elementary school. A ton of them, but high school. mm -hmm. Yeah, there were a few things that were. Did you guys pay extra for milk break for your kids? Yeah. Yeah. Got to do the milk break. break. Oh, they don't. No. No. What the heck? They do a snack break, but you have to send it. Okay. And you have to send water. So we don't Lame. have a milk break. Yeah, Seymour, you could pay extra for like a milk break. Why does rights don't hate dairy farmers? Yes. Because we don't have any. <laughs> yeah, they should be first. <laughs> or just the biggest break. ones. Yeah. Dude, milk break, was, milk break was awesome. That was like the best part of the day. I do like when the kid, like, since COVID, they don't. Hopefully, this year they will. But when you like have lunch with your kids at school for birthdays or whatever, star of the week or whatever, it always is frustrating how much food and oh, milk yeah. gets just thrown away. Yeah, thrown like away. the yeah. kids. I mean, I get it. They're kids. They're not gonna. But I could, I could like being a lunch lady has to be one of the most well, toughest things is just literally watching them throw. Well, what you just slaved but the, over. The biggest issue is that they don't get enough time to eat. That's the problem. Yeah, and they're yeah. eating so fast. It's so fast. Like, well, and they got to be like on them kids too, because the kids are just want to talk or screw around or don't want to eat. That's like, like half the reason my kids want to take cold lunches so they can just start eating. Sure. Because if you wait in line and you're like at the end of the line, it's you like, get like five minutes it's to like wolf down your food. To Fifteen minutes max, right? Yeah. Right. It's no, not long. It's, not it's way too short. Not gonna lie to you guys, the uh, Garvey household never had a hard time with not having enough time to eat. But we were raised like a pack of wolves. When food hit the table, it was gone. You had to like eat. Like I remember, my mom, my mom's mom came to visit my grandma, and she bought uh, chicken, like Chester's chicken, at the grocery store in town. And she came home, and she was on the phone, and she set it on the table, and she turned around to like, and she's like, "Okay, I gotta go by." And she hung up the phone. And she turned around, and there was already chicken bones like on the table. And she was like, "What's wrong with you guys?" So they only fed you once a day, then. <laughs> No, we ate all the time. I don't know, but we just, uh, we house food. Our house was like, you eat in 20 minutes. Like, that's that's setting the table, eating, clearing the table, dishes washed 20 minutes in and out. Like, no doubt. So, we never, that short lunch period. Then 20 minutes later, their, all their food was coming back out. It was. They, uh, often, yes. I'm not going to deny that. But, yeah, the short lunch break, I was all about that. Plus, if you eat faster, you get to go outside and play faster. So Right. Not in high school, I guess, but I say I don't think they get to go outside right away. I think they have to wait till a certain time to go out in elementary school. Yeah, because they have to get the lunch monitor out there. They're allowed to eat too, I guess. So, anyway, all right, you guys, ready to talk corn? Yeah. Always. So, Todd, when's my corn going to be ready? When's it ready? And and. It's wild out there because this is topic was spawned by one of our agronomists visiting another agronomy company down in North Carolina last week. So shout out to Matt Winslow at Tidewater Agronomics in Camden, North Carolina. So that'd be right on the coast. So you're like Virginia Beach. Then Which would make like sense with the name hours. Tidewater. Yeah. 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 And literally like all these were like, they call it like the Tidewater area and just it is wild to me all the different egg areas in the nation and where they are and how they came about. And Derek was down there, one of our agronomists, and visiting them and kind of seeing how their system set up and you know talking to them and meeting with them. And he drove by a combine, grass green corn, like so it looked like our corn here, and the combine was out harvesting. And turn, Derek turned to Matt and was like, "What are they doing?" And he's like harvesting corn that's a combine do you have combines yeah. where you're from from he's like yeah like i get that but we don't like i could see a corn chopper being out there for silage but not that grain corn yeah you usually don't take grain when it's green right and he's like no that's how we do it here so they get through everything and and because of weather pressure down there and like risks for diseases and other weird weather and especially like hurricanes well, yeah they like, said the first tropical storm could be like next week yeah so yeah. like they got to so basically they need to harvest because of hurricane risk like they're going now so that 
if they get a hurricane, like you'd lose your whole crop, basically, potentially. Did he say what maturity corn? Yeah, and they didn't really get into any of that, but it it had to be down in that. It was still like say twenty five to twenty eight percent grain moisture. It wasn't like he's doing stuff, you know, as black layers we, and red. That's got to be an expensive drying just, cost. Yeah, drying would be higher. We we did get to see some corn harvested here last year that was r- kind of green, which was out of the normal for us. But I guess maybe in their weather, does that you know what I mean? Like we don't very often see corn at twenty five percent that's green, right? Because most of the time, by the time our corn is on at twenty five percent, it's been frosted it's six times. Yeah. True. <laughs> so maybe True. that is part of the equation. I also wonder, Matt. You mentioned higher drying costs. Is it that much higher? Because they're trying to dry corn when it's ninety degrees. Think about how much how much it costs us because we're trying to dry it when it's. But they're coastal, so there's probably humidity too. True, yeah, yeah. true. But you know what I mean? Like, how much propane does it take to heat that to bin up that, when it's 20 yeah. degrees versus right. when it's yeah already 100? Yeah, no, I agree. the 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 difference would be wild. Like, it would just be the. Um, <laughs> they turn on the air for five minutes, and that's all they have to do to dry their corn. Yeah, yeah. So like. He said, and there's a chart from NC State that I was looking up. So their extension has this, like, kind of figure out. So depending the area you're in, the risk, and the corn price, they didn't use the drying price as much as just, like, corn price. Okay. So, which I thought was odd, but if it's a high corn price and you're in a high-risk area, like the Tidewater or Southern Coastal Plain of, of that area, then at 25% corn, you should be starting. Like, you should be going just because high corn price and the risk of losing your crop is higher and then they got kind of other areas that you'd start at 23 percent where you have moderate risk and then lower risk you'd start at 21 percent which i would say is maybe too where like in our area we it's usually like that 18 to 20 percent ish guys i think we try and start around like 20 right to be so that would be about the same as this low risk area at 21 percent so i thought that was just wild of yeah just to be worried about a hurricane like we don't yeah we don't have to worry about tornadoes yeah our tornado season's usually usually not always but usually winding down right every once in a while you get a late one and we had one opening weekend of bowl season which would be like september 15th one year i remember there was tornado that year and like but most of the time yeah it's june well when do we have one this year june right yeah there was some in june some in july yeah the one in June is the one I remember for some reason. I don't know why that one sticks out in my head so much. <laughs> Probably because there were like 12 of them. And, <laughs> and it leveled. All, it the, leveled all the same day. Portion of our area. Think of that if like that comes with mature corn. Like We got that when it was fairly small and just, yeah. just. Well, yeah, and luckily it, we didn't have much hail. We had a hailstorm right. separately from that, but it, we didn't have much hail with the, the tornadoes. It messed up my sweet corn bad, man. It was hard picking. It was all... Gooseneck. Yeah. Talking about. (laughs) Which I just saw a bunch of roofs getting replaced that were probably insurance hail damage deals because it was the same. Apparently, this company, DuraShield, must go around after storms because it, like, all. So just storm chasers. Right. All these driveways had, like, the DuraShield sign and all the house roofs were coming off at the same time. It was like, oh, yeah, these must be the guys that go around and, like, hey, we'll replace your roof for you. So here in the Midwest, it's a little different. So one of the better publications I could find was through UW-Minnesota. Boo! (laughs) (laughs) UW-Minnesota Extension has... uh, No, so University of Minnesota Extension has kind of a good layout here of kind of when to start and what to look for. And basically, what we always do want to watch for is silking time. Like even in silage, we watch for silking and tasseling. And corn's going to reach maturity about 55 to 60 days after silking time. Or once you get to half milk stage, it takes about 10 to 12 days. So right now you could be watching for more of that half milk stage. And then you know it's going to be mature in about 10 to 12 days. And maturity just means black layer. And it'll still be at about 32% moisture at that time. So that's just getting us to sort of where you... You know, I, I don't want to say ripe corn, but it's, it's just It's not going to make more corn. yield, right? Not right. going to put on more test weight at that point. Right. And then even you got to watch the corn still respiring at that point. So actually at that point, you're potentially losing yield the rest of the way out, which is odd to think about, you know, as it dries down, 
but it, but you could actually be losing yield if you wait too much longer. So they're saying you do want to wait till to start at least till it's reached 22 to 24 percent, and basically anything greater than 26 percent, you can't, you know, just. And I, you guys, because we do a lot of high moisture corn, it's just it's a different. Even when you, you know, like the product just is different than dry corn at yeah. that point. You know that twenty six percent higher is a much different product than below that. Correct. So then it's about one percentage point a day of dry down. Once we hit that black layer, and that re- that's from about September fifteenth to the end of September, and then we drop down to half a point to 0.75 once you get to like that late September, early October. And then by like late October, you're down to a quarter point. But, but Todd, if I let it out there till, till, <laughs> till deer hunting, it's surely going to dry. dry. Right. So that's, what's tricky with this too, is we don't really know. And we've had later falls, we've had different things, but yeah, last it, year you probably got all of that third of a percent after October 15th because we had some warm weather into right in the November like 80 even. degrees a week before deer season <laughs> yeah. last year right versus two years ago when September was cold and you probably <laughs> weren't even getting the full one percent right so you were trying to make silage and we couldn't get it to drop down right so that's that is what is wild to me is that change from one percent I mean one percent a day that's pretty quick Dropping down to a quarter, I mean, that's four days are worth one day. Like, you just you just really see it, like, yeah, right around that kind of early October's the timing. Like, you go... Okay. Right around our first frost I, right, is when things right. just kind of... just, like, the whole train just slows way down. We got to make our hay in September, right? I mean, if, if it's... If you still got 35% at the end of September... You you better have a better plan than right. wait till deer hunting. Right. It just doesn't seem like it drops. Like it just quits on you. Yeah. So and we've seen it sort of freeze dry. It can do some stuff, but it's you just really see that change. So that's the main stuff to watch for corn grain. Um so the to switch gears and go to right now for silage. The UW extension has some good stuff on silage and kind of timing and triggers. And a lot of it it's is half milk line, right? Yeah. I mean, basically, yes. Then it's go time. I but, pulled one copper on the edge of the field and it was half milk line. That means <laughs> it's time to chop, right? This one headland was, it was half milk. So what, what blew me away is their thing literally says kernel milk line is not a reliable indicator to de- determine harvest timing, which I sort of agree with, but at the same time, it, it is a, it, it can be a good indicator, but what they're getting at is it isn't all, it, just because you're half milk. Doesn't mean the rest of the plant Which, is well, when you're taking the rest of the when you're taking the whole plant. Just because the kernel says half milk line doesn't mean it, it and is a half right. milk line can be somewhat subjective to the eye because when you look at a kernel, a kernel is not square. True. <clears throat> it, so you, it's and it's kind of the way people judge that sometimes can be different. Yeah, I agree with you. Even yeah, even you let them sit in your truck for an hour and that changes a lot. It's the quick and dirty, right? It like, is. You yeah. know, if you pull it and it's half milk line, it's probably worth you, pulling a full sample. When you pull it and it's nothing, it's like, well, I probably don't need to pull a full silage burn. Well, it was like here. we were talking this morning. How many samples did we, did we grab to dry down this week? Not many because at least around here, my corn no. just starting to dent. Yeah, we we right. barely have dents. Not, not even, yeah, not even full dent. Like it's it's going to be wet. What I like that they so the UW talks about having this trigger using the milk line as your trigger. Whoa, we yeah. shouldn't be triggering trigger. anybody. It is triggering the. I, corn. I hear that's bad. Indicator. How's so that? so yeah. what what is they're that saying indicator? that's better. That's better. When it's at eighty percent, like milk line that triggers you to take a sample, which makes sense. So when you get that like just barely milk line starting, then you know it's time you know, to go check where it's at. And all of our our silage depends on how you store it. Like corn grain, you dry it down and it's not storage dependent necessarily. Where this if depends how we're storing it to what our ideal moisture content is. So bunkers we want around sixty five percent. A bag kind of varies a little bit more. You could go sixty to seventy percent. And then silos you know, concrete silos you want at sixty to sixty-five, but if you're in like a harvester silo, then you want it really low at fifty to sixty percent. Um, which those are wild. I don't know if you guys are like 
50 to 60 percent stuff going in a silo just it looks like brown yeah right it's like it looks like it's yeah yeah Yeah. so the the bigger part too i would say is like my ideal is still like 64 percent if we had if you asked me like what i want i would choose that because it reduces on leachate you know in a bunker or in a this is in a bunker drive over feed pad pile you know and i just Seems like when you get that 66 to 68%, I know that's what more nutritionists wanted at. And I think that's just because they don't want it too dry. So it's kind of a tricky number. But it but definitely what, runs. Right. You just, like, at 64%, it, yeah. it'll it just stick and it won't run as bad. And Dryness is related to mycotoxins too, right? It is. So, I mean, you, if you're it, well, taking it wetter, you should have less. Potentially, and, and it should ensile better. I mean, that'd be the part, too, is... When it gets too dry, it may not properly cure out and ferment. And then it just rots. Yeah. and So you, we're by no means specialists in that part of all what goes on, but it does. This moisture part is a huge deal, and that window is tiny. Like, we're not shooting for, you know, you don't have this five-point spread where if it's at 60, yeah, whatever, and if it's at 70, yeah, whatever. It's like, no, we, we really need it 64 to 66. So, Todd, would you describe your perfect day as April 25th? It's not too warm. It's, and it's not, not too hot. cold. <laughs> Probably more September. Do, 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 do you know what movie, right. movie that's from? I have no idea. It's from a movie, quote, The Perfect Day. As they ask the contestant to describe her perfect date, and she says April 25th. Nice. Uh, uh, she's obviously never been in Wisconsin on April 25th, because <laughs> that is a terrible <laughs> day. Just the way you were you were talking about sixty four percent being it's, your your it's idea. Got to be perfect. Do you guys have a number that's sort of ideal in your mind where you're where you like it, or just where you see a lot of growers sort of pushing you to look? And this is grower dependent. Yeah, a lot of times the growers have that that right. number in mind of like oh, I want it at, at this, and well, and then you got the starch component, right? That they want to yep. push it to get maximum starch. So that depends on moisture as well. It also depends on if they're harvesting themselves versus a yeah. custom harvester. To me, that seems to be the biggest yeah. determining factor in how much what we get for moistures is because we're dependent on when, you know, and if you're, if you're a guy who's only going to chop 40 acres and you have a custom operation coming in, you're really going to be at the mercy of them because they're not, they're not dropping any, everything for 40 acres, right? So, And, yeah, those guys typically then base their maturity on where they usually sit in that harvest line. So they might grow a little bit longer day corn just because for silage, because they know they're going to be toward the tail end. Yeah. So they wanted to hold on to that moisture a little bit longer, mm. which can bite you in the butt some years. But and you know, you know, they're probably not going to take off the headlands and go. Ah, it's pretty wet. We'll have to come back in a couple of days. It's nope. It's all going right now. When they show up, it's yeah, it's home. game over. So you kind of got to plan. The big guy who's next to you just plant the same exact corn he does on the same day and let him chop it all at once, right? That'd be the easiest way, but... And the big guys probably have to start a little sooner, so at the end, it's not too dry? Yeah, I, reading, I was reading some notes the other day and some discussions that we ha- were having about harvest right now, and we talked about our average harvest window being 21 days from first field chop to last field chop, 21 days of chopping. Like, you start thinking about that, how much moisture can change in 21 days? Yeah, it's perfect, Max, getting our segue of... It's a, what the research would show is half a point a day in September is what, what you can expect. So like you say, in that many days, you're dropping. You really should start 12%. a few points wet right? and you, end a few points dry. To, to, to hit that number, right? So the half a point a day comes from some research from uh, Manitowoc County agent Scott Hendrickson. I think he's still around there, but this is research from the late 90s. And Scott took a bunch of fields and kind of did a curve. Um, and I got the chart up here, guys, and I, that curve is actually pretty, pretty. you know, sometimes when you, like, throw a bunch of data on a chart, it's not, you know, straight down by a half percent. It's pretty good, but what he would show is there's a range of 0.4 to 0.7% per day. Um, some, sometimes, like, after rain, you might get a blip up or something out of the ordinary that way. But in general, that half a percent rain's pretty true, but... I do think it's interesting as we say a half percent, but the range is 0.4 to 0.7. So really it's probably, you know, 0.55%, which is close enough, but there is days. And if it's drier, you know, hotter and drier, it's going to drop by, you know, what feels like more because it's at that 0.7. 
Yeah. So, and if, yeah, you don't know that it, yeah, the half percent is just kind of a, a rough estimate, but it could be more, it could be less. And I think we've seen with our dry downs, that's why we do how we do it. And what we do is we kind of grab some, you know, sometimes once a week, sometimes more often to, to get that curve and see, okay, not only here's the number and not that the number doesn't matter, but we want to see, okay, what it is, how is it drying down? And I feel like once you get some tests set like that, 67 to 70%, you can really, that curve really works. Whereas when you got stuff that's, say, really wet yet at 75%, you can't. I mean, you can use this as a guide, but it, it's not perfect. Yeah, and then you throw disease pressure and other things in that might artificially dry down the plant a little quicker. Um, you know, that, that can take a toll too versus if you put fungicide on, a, on your silage. So just because your neighbor's chopping doesn't mean you should be chopping. Feel like we've had this conversation before. Well, in in are you chopping conventional silage or are you chopping BMR? Yeah, uh, and is it mixed BMR with mixed maturities? Because then you know you got to kind of pick somewhere in the middle, maybe as your your moisture, because one's going to be a little bit wetter or drier. Because it you don't always have exactly the same See. maturity range in those mixes. Well, and there's the whole. Um, there's, uh, you get a couple days grace right on your maturities. What is it? Three days technically. So a 96 day can actually mature like a 99 day and the other, the, it can go the other way too, where a 96 day can mature like a 93 day. So now you got a night, they're both 96s, but one's really more of a 93 and one's really more of a 99. Well, yeah, that's our, a long ways apart. Our favorite seed dealer lingo. Well, it's a 99 day, but it acts more like a 101 day. It's a late flower. <laughs> yeah. But you start putting those together, and you can get a long ways apart on stuff that's supposed to be exactly the same, right? Yep. And even, you know, planting conditions, planting time, might have a couple fields in 96 day that you planted a week apart. Well, they're not going to mature exactly the same day either. In some years, maybe they will, just because of different factors. But So for growers that want to take their own moisture samples, Todd, now, I mean, we do a lot of them. What's your tips on... How to grab a sample, what to dry it down in. Three plants off the headlands. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest cobs you can find. Something really close to the lane that's been burning up all summer. Depends. But yeah, if you want to go right today, then you grab those. If you want to wait a while, then, <laughs> then you go, go, go the to the low spot. The, the wild part with that, Bill, is, is I just read some research that they kind of, and I don't, it was hard to tell exactly how they did that research, but they went in a field and grabbed X amount of plants to try to decide how many, you know, we always grab like three plants. It's just because that's part of it's because that's what you can handle, you know, in our system, when you're doing this small scale, you can't grab a lot. So they grabbed up to like a hundred plants and sampled it 50 and then kind of down all the way to, to sort of that three plants. And they found the sweet spots, 10 plants in the field, which even that, reading that, I'm like, okay, that's cool research to know you should be grabbing 10 plants, but that's even for us... Practicality is... Right, it's... When you come to like, Tilt the Agronomy World Headquarters on a normal day in September, there's 65 samples running. Right. That's 6,500 plants, right? Math right 650. 650, sorry. I'm at extra did. zero. I got excited. But, Still. Even, but even that, to like you say, our, our scale for, for doing these... So one thing to think about these burn downs, they're just to get you... They're just a forecast. Put you in the bar, ballpark. Get, get yeah. you in the ballpark. But think of that. I mean, we're taking three plants to try to represent a whole field that has tens of thousands of plants. Like this isn't. This is just a guess, just to get us in the ballpark. Then you got to get your chopper out there and do actually like some test loads, kind of see where that's well, at. And once once you start, then guys get the feel of where the silage is at and how fast they got to be going or slow. Here's the other thing I always notice after I pull about the first. I don't know, ten or twelve I, moistures. I don't. I could not pull another one, and I bet you I can be within be half close. a point because it's. You start to see the pattern for the year, and every year it's different. Last year, the plants were really green. The cobs, cobs. were super dry. The cobs and, actually got mature last year. Like it was half milk line and yep. still pretty wet. So and yes, so you're right. So like you get you do get where you're pretty good, and then even that, um, you know, if you nah, still not sure walking through the field. Usually, once you run it through the chopper. Or we, you know, we have a chipper shredder. Once you run it through there, you can a hear it, and yep. b if you can, when you squeeze that silage, you know, 
you know when it silage is ready. I mean, you. The other part that blows me is we use 100 grams as our amount on the tray. Yep. And depending how much stuff it took to get to 100 grams, yeah, when how much material. Right. Like, when you got it where you can barely get the next tray on because you right. had that. It's, it's probably so time much, to go. It's too dry. It's too dry. Yeah. Yeah. You should have been going. Yeah. And if it's just like barely any, you know, I've always saw that if there's got to be an easy like volume to amount that would just tell you pretty close to. But the, um, there's a lot of methods to be like uh, dehydrators, microwaves, air fryers. And I are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Honestly, looking at the research, they're all good. And they're all got some, you know, things that you don't like. It depends on how quick you need them. But it the important thing is consistency. Do yeah, the same do, thing each time. Don't go NIR, then, then dehydrator, yep. then, because then you're really going to be well, and, all over the place. We do a dehydrator because we want the volume of samples and we don't have time to tend to them like a coster tester. Like Just even the amount of electricity a coster uses, like right. they're great for doing five to 10 samples, but when you're doing 100 samples, doesn't it just doesn't work. Microwave can work for doing that many, but I never liked standing by the microwave and then running them and you burn them sometimes and it just isn't as easy. Air fryer seems to be kind of a cool new method to try to, and that's sort of the microwave new, new way of doing with the microwave. It's similar to that. And I know two years ago there was a burn down that went on in the area here and they were running an NIR and costers at the burn down. And then we were bringing our samples back and running them on our dehydrators. And you got three different moistures that were all three points apart. And I'm not saying one was right, wrong, anything like that, but three different ways, and they were, you know, from top to bottom, quite a few. They were honest, quite a ways apart. Three three points, though, I wouldn't... I mean, it's too far, but again, if you know your system, you know how many points you need to add because you're never getting absolute right. zero. You, need, you know, it's just that part of it. I do struggle with that is typically the norm is to add two points to kind of a lot of these methods, but there's times of the year where I'll add up to four and... Sometimes in the year, I'll only be adding sort of a point. So there's an art to that, too, like Max said, of getting the feel for the year well, and the time. How long did it ride in the back of your truck? Well, did right, you pull yeah. it with the dew on it? I mean, some of that kind of stuff. I mean, we did a couple of years ago at a dry down. We took plants because we were actually doing the dry down in the rain. So we took plants yeah. right out of the field, chopped them up, and then we took like the bottom section of the plant just to see how much moisture was wicking up in that yeah. plant as you're... And, it was, you know, at least a couple points worth of moisture in that wicking up into the plant just from having rain. We, so we pulled them in the rain before, and it's I don't know. You kind of feel like you're waste, wasting your it, time because everything's so wet that it's hard to. It sort of is wasting your time, but it's still data. Which yeah, is the, it's still data, and you you can use it and look at it, and you can tell. Like you know, if you if you pulled it on Monday and it was sixty eight, and then you pulled it in the rain on Thursday and it was still sixty eight, it's drying, it's, man. Yeah, it's get natural. going. And how many times have we done that? You know, like it'll be a certain temperature, like 70. And then the next time you go and do it right after rain, it's 72. And then you wait a week and it's like 63. It's back down. It's like that that 72 was a fake. It was a elevated number from the rain. Right. I agree with you, but whatever number you went up to, it it didn't. It's still back to that 70 in your example. Like it didn't. It pulls it up, but it'll lose it. Right, it doesn't hang on to it, yeah. Because the plant's not really... I mean, it's still alive, but not really alive. And it's all all a bunch of crap until until the harvester goes through. So that's really... You said it before, like test loads and things like that. That's when you really seem to find out what you're at. But we get an awful good idea, I feel like. I, I think we can put guys within the sort of five days to when it's ready you know i even up to like a week maybe but to say like this is the day is really hard but we can get them within okay you should probably just try it this day so you can kind of see where you're at and you know then whether you should keep going or just stop after it's the a test loads test load on friday hit her hard on monday, monday. that's, the, that's... Way, the way this year's shaping up with kind of how labor day sat and the, the it looks like a lot of it's gonna go you know, a fr- you know, like you say, test load Thursday, Fridays, go on a Monday. And the way the planting set up, it looks like well, it's, that. it's test load Friday and then spend all weekend running around <laughs> fixing, get, get every wagon weekend. ready, get every neighborhood kid who can drive a tractor, get him on the payroll. Like, yeah. All right. So there you go. Things to keep in mind as you're looking at grain harvest and silage harvest. Now we'll move to our spotlight for today. So 
the Case IH Trident 5550 is using Raven Autonomy for driverless spreading. So it is a combination applicator, can do both liquid and dry applications, but they have now equipped Raven monitors to allow you to autonomously spread your field. Case IH is the first fully autonomous spreader. Significant milestone and accelerated product development efforts between Case IH and Raven, highlighting intense collaboration and robust product innovation following CNH Industrial's acquisition of Raven late last year in 2020. Hey, remember we talked about that, how yeah. Raven got bought out, and this seems to be some of the kind of technology that they were trying to go for, I think, to get into this driverless autonomy thing. I, you guys got to watch, they got a video of it, and I mean, it just basically looks like a fertilizer spread you know there's no nothing weird with right. the cab. it can there's, it can be run both ways you right. can drive it yourself or you can run it autonomously but i'm just picturing like watching it without a person in the cab driving around is just wild like we're gonna get if anybody driving by sees that they're gonna stop <laughs> and run out there and be like what's going yeah on? like oh my god it's you know like there's a problem yeah, you, you can plan and complete entire field from mapped boundaries has a series of cameras and radar system which senses the 360-degree environment, AI to tell it to stream images, which powers the perception controller to detect obstacles so it won't run into stuff. And if it does recognize an obstacle, the machine comes to a stop, and operator receives an alert on your phone. So be like, hey, I can't spread anymore. What should I do? I would wonder if like this technology for the co-op system would be a game-changer. With all of the staffing and well, look at the labor shortage labor they're, having. they're having, yeah, your tender could basically just now your spreader truck driver could right. be the tender. I, the hard part you still need you still a get the spreader to there get though. To the field, yeah, true. I don't think you can legally drive it down the road with no, no driver. No. Fertilizer too. I my choice wouldn't necessarily have been fertilizer first, just because like say this thing drives in the ditch and dumps over, like you don't just have a you know like. You got fertilizer dumped out. Like, that part of it, too, I guess. Would you rather have... I'd rather have that than a sprayer. Yeah, I was going to say... Right. No, a sprayer wouldn't be my first choice either. A I'm sprayer saying, full of Germoxone wouldn't no, be ideal. No, My first choice would be, like, like a, a planter, not even... Like, tillage or more of equipment like that, which we... They're kind of doing that. But, yeah, this this over-sprayer, I agree with that. I look at the... what. Well, I wonder what it's like in season, like, skinny tires spreading in urea and corn that's, you know, waist-high. Ooh. Right, yeah. is it just running down roll or can it even do it? Yeah, that's no, a good question. I, mean, I would imagine well, if it's, it would but it, feed onto your AB line. Yeah, but wouldn't it planting. sense those as obstacles and just stop? You know, like I, Well, I think you'd have to, yeah. Yeah, tell it to. That, that'd be the AI part of it. The other, recognizing a corn plant versus like a rock or telephone pole. or The other thing is there is still guys who don't have an AB line. Right. So... For fall spreading, it'd be fine when you're yeah. or, post-harvest or yeah. pre-harvest or, or pre-planting. I mean, hayfields hay yep. between crops would be awesome. No, I think I think this is a logical step to try it on, just because like with tillage and stuff, if you something gets snagged on the the toolbar, it's harder to sense obstacles from a tillage that's right. in, running from, in the like, ground. Way behind you versus this is just driving over the top. You know what? Even if they could just... I'm, now I'm thinking. Even if they just had this after first crop, because there's so much going on, if you could just have autom- autonomous sure. potash going on after first crop, like because we're doing so much spraying and corn fertilizer and things like that, just get two of them that are running on their own on hay fields. And- yeah. for, for me, sprayers, I think, last. The last thing you do, just because if you don't... Well, remember to clean it out. Your and booms you're, are Somebody's hot loading. You know, there's... Just so well, many things well, that could... What I'm picturing with the sprayer, too, is this person driving by sees nobody in the cab and then freaks out and runs out there while you're spraying. That would be bad. I mean... And no one's there to tell them, I, well, hey, yeah, you're, like, you're being an idiot. Please well, stop. I, I just... These look wild. Like, I, I don't know if they're going to have to put, a, like, a dummy in the seat. Just uh, <laughs> A scarecrow, but right, it's to like, keep people from calling it in. <laughs> just to, it's like Home Alone, where it's, like, wired to something, so its hand just, just goes up every now yeah. and again. Uh, even with spraying, I think you're still going to have a tender on the side of the field. I don't think you're ever going to get away with... Oh, no, no way. Never having no anyone, way. even in the remote right. vicinity. It's just you're cutting down on the number of people in that vicinity. Yeah. I still think, too, like the, the piggybacking with these could be awesome. Or you still have, say, one guy driving one, 
and then you have the other one sort of following him in the field, and then he can drive that, say, to the next field. The tender guy can give him a ride to when the last one's done. You know, like, just more people can operate, less people can operate more machines, which is cool. And there's the whole, you know, fatigue argument that with auto steer and all that stuff of you're not, you're not as focused on having to do every step so you can... The person running it can go longer potentially because they're not under the same stresses as they would be if they had to to, to run yeah. it manually. Do you guys think this will prove though, like the next ten, twenty years, like Case IH has the cabless tractor that is autonomous, and why they didn't do that with these? Like, don't you think that proves that the next ones for sure though are going to be still have a cab so somebody can drive it between fields and like, yeah, still like. The the cabless thing until for now yeah until you have the legality and yes. the system set up that you can go down the road without a driver right like I just feel I, these you are, are you're going to need to prove that the cab part still I yeah. can't see cabless ever I, I, right I mean not for a long time and if it's cabless it'll still be following a cab there's very thing, few right? guys who never want to get in the tractor right? right like even the guys who are like I'm overwhelmed I can't do it all the time they still want to be in it a little bit. Well, even this, I still feel like as the co-op guy, you'd still just ride in it and do all your work from the cab. Almost, you know, like you might even need to, like a bigger cab because it's now your your mobile office, so they can just zoom in. Just stuff a nice, perfectly and, square cab because yeah. they need the desk more in monitors in those things. I, well, all set up. right, but but I'm just saying you'd just basically be sitting in the tractor would be your office, and you'd just be riding in it and what you know, making sure it doesn't do anything stupid. Answering emails from the agronomist, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you'd have a trust window. Yeah. All right, let's look at their GDUs. So I don't know if this is probably the final GDU update of the year. I, we could be doing some more, but it, it felt like we need an update because especially in Seymour at Tilth headquarters, we kind of hit a milestone, you know, this last week in GDUs. So it's kind of a big deal. Hmm. So in Seymour, to date, we're at 2,080. So just this week, we broke the 2,000 mark. So if you were growing a 90-day corn planted May 1st, it would be black layering. Is that an 87 that acts like a 90? Or or is it a 90 that acts like a 92? It's more of like a 90-day that acts like a (laughs) 90-day. Those don't exist. I'm convinced. I got it. It's an 87-day that identifies as a 90-day. That's what it is, Max. Just had to clarify that for the people. So we're we're pretty close to actual we're, we're normal. Spot on normal. We're yeah. like nineteen above normal only, which basically, like we said all year, it's normal. And in the next fourteen days, we're projected to get to two thousand three hundred fifty one, which actually is quite a bit as well. So for as we're talking silage dry downs, it's going to be wild this fall because we're we're getting enough heat that could push us like. To not only say be quicker than you think, but be right on to where you think. I I think you I think I see the the silage snap coming. Right where you're like seventy two, seventy two, seventy two, sixty five. Right, like crap. Like it's time to go. I yeah. agree with you, Max. We, I, that's kind of what I what I'm feeling right now. We had that three years ago, 2019. There was a fall, and like out, like on a Friday late afternoon, I got like five calls from farmers. Like my silage looks different. Yeah. And they were planning on starting Monday, and by Monday it got like too dry. So you're right; like this has that feel of a year where all of a sudden it just gets away on you. The other thing I'm seeing is ridiculously close uh, physio- physiological signs yes. of maturity right now. Yep. From a 95 day to 105 day, they look almost the same, same. in the field. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, that's even look at planting. I mean, we've talked about all this, but like being cold late May made every planting date almost pretty close to the same too so yeah nothing nothing actually grew until at, may 25th yeah, like it's pretty much it's already at the same time so in in crivets so going up to the north woods up there it's at 2038 which is crazily close to where we are in seymour and they are 234 above normal so they are kind of like way above normal up and, there and they're more likely to be planting more 90 day corn so they're right they're gonna be hitting black layer pretty quicker yeah potentially pretty quick depending when they plant it you bet their corn probably didn't start growing till June 15. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. As cold as it was. 
And then down south, some prairie-wise, they're at 2,336. Down there, and their normal is 2,070. So they, too, are 200-some above normal, which is... They're, they're like, looking a week into our future. To me, like, yes. Or two weeks yeah. into our future. Um, I'll, I'll, push, I'll push back there. I think the corn might be ahead up here. It might there be. too, it's by GDUs. I mean, not actual. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's by based on planting date. They're not getting that many GDUs No, because so. there was a lot of later planting down that way. We're too. it's weird because I spend a lot of time down there, and but we we're up here. You guys were rat racing around, checking depths and doing populations, and I was like, well, we might turn a wheel next week. I mean, we'll see. So, but it'll be actually it'll end up being very close to even as far as harvest. I think. Right. So that is our potentially final gdu update we'll see what happens rest of this fall all right thanks dad yeah thank you matt and thank you to our listeners out there please subscribe to the podcast and tell a farmer friend we really always we ask you is to tell a farmer friend we need more subscribers so hit the subscribe button unsubscribe as many times as you can there is a bunch of ways to listen on your iPhone, you can download. Should have, it already comes with Apple Podcasts? Just search Tilt Talk Radio. And on Android, you have to download an app. We like the app Podcast Addict. Download that and then search Tilt Talk Radio there. You can also listen on your computer or smartphone browser. Go to slash podcast. We're also available on Amazon Music. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Tilt Talk Radio. All right, now we're going to wrap things up with some cool beans. That's corny and current events, so cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Our cool beans this week, Corteva and BASF, have partnered to deliver new weed control solutions for soybean growers. Sometimes teamwork can make the dream work. And no, I didn't come up with that with myself. That is the opening line of this article. So together, two industry giants are expected to accomplish what Individually, no company has done introduce a four-way herbicide-tolerant trait stack in elite soybean germplasm. So they're dedicated to bringing growers new options, new choices for weed controls, according to Peter X, president of research and development and regulatory for BASF during a joint press conference with Corteva. He said that they'll start working on crop protection, or he started in the crop protection industry 20 years ago, that farmers could control almost any weed, but today that's not the case with the development and extensive spread of weed resistance throughout the U.S. and globally. So BASF will license its proprietary PPO gene for herbicide tolerance to Corteva to develop a new herbicide tolerance trait stack. Stack will include BASF's Liberty, Corteva's Enlist, and various glyphosate herbicide solutions, as well as BASF's PPO inhibiting herbicides, all demonstrating excellent crop safety. So it'll be glyphosate, Liberty, Enlist, and PPO, like Kixor or Tyrexor. And those that's your four-way stack. I don't know if I like that. It's like the Packers teaming up with the Bears or something like that. It just... It does feel a little dirty. I don't like that part. Of it. Okay, which one's the Packers? Which one's the Bears? Uh, you just you just painted yourself I, into uh, a corner here, Chief. Uh, it, it it just feels like all the there's so much consolidation and everything, and now this where they're teaming up. Like they should still just sort of they're still competitors and hate each other, and I get that. And it's good to license technology. You know they're not. So so I shouldn't um, bring up that they're but, talking about also putting together a five way stack adding. <laughs> Uh, HPPD in it. And I'm excited well. for all these stacks, but also I'm like thinking of like pretty quick, like volunteer soybeans and corn are going to be impossible to kill because they're <laughs> stacked with everything. Like, hey, they're just fixing nitrogen, dude. I don't know yeah, why. Which is, rare, which is rare. It's a problem. Cover crop. But, yeah, cover crop. But like if, we, at some point, though, we got to come up with a new active. Like, true. I get, I get like. like these new stacks, and we're adding different herbicides we can spray on beans and different timings. But especially for beans, a new active like we still got to have, have a new a, active. Like, can't we oh, all just get along? Oh, I wonder how many chemicals get like brought up and they start making them, and they're like, "Yeah, new active, here it comes." And then the first time they spray it on a palmer or a water hemp, and it doesn't do anything, they're like, "Never mind, try again." Think of it more like I, the All Star Game. 
It's bringing all these teams that compete against each other in the oh. same division together. All star games are the worst. Oh no! <laughs> you just, oh no! You just brought up. Like, oh no! I think the hard part I, with new herbicides it just costs so much to get everything like the research, the regulatory, all the hoops they got to jump. It's why they're not doing it. It's cheaper to do this. It's not three guys sitting in around a table just like going like, "Well, we haven't tried putting those three chemicals together. We'll try that." It's more than that, Bill. Kind of because we could make up some stuff. I bet. Just start mixing things together. Might take out every fence line in North America, but we could come up with something, I bet. I, I am excited. For, like, E3 soybeans have been good. This is basically... E4. E4. Yeah. So uh, adding that extra trade, I think... I don't know how much I... I haven't used much Kixor or any of that stuff. I don't, we, so I don't know much. We about talked that. about this a couple of weeks ago, but we still have to remember E3, E4, E5, whatever you want to call it. There's still things that we're learning. There's still deficiencies, or there's still things that you can't do. Like they're not. That's a good point. Like when Roundup first came out, it was just like, oh, just plant Roundup and spray Roundup, you know, and it worked. This is like, oh, that's four stack. Just plant these beans and spray that, and you'll be good. Right. It's you still need the residuals and the other products. Right. And you still you program. still shouldn't spray, spray things that are three feet tall. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. Still got to use the technology. Why well, you guys are so picky all the time? <laughs> got to spray things on label. <laughs> Still, details. still don't try to kill two foot water hemp. Like that, <laughs> just because it's e whatever, still do the right. E one hundred. A plant that size is hard to kill. Don't let your water hemp get that big. No, I mean velvet leaf. Right, that's an easy one to kill. When it's four feet tall, it's a lot harder to kill. Mm-hmm. And you, and that's got like. The herbicide capturing capability of a velvet leaf is just like a sale out there that yeah. you would think. And one growing just, point. Right. You would think it would be like the easiest thing just to, but no, it's at that. It isn't. That not. point, you need a flamethrower. Right. right. <laughs> just burn it. All right. And our, that's corny this week. U.S. diesel prices are back above $5. Gross. Low inventories sent national average back above 5 uh, particularly the Northeast has low supply uh, with diesel fuel and heating oil currently 63% below the five-year average. Get it together, Boston. What the heck? What's going on up there? You lost Tom Brady and now you're losing your crap? What's going on? So And like right for harvest. That's what I is. Yep. Feel so oh, most guys have theirs booked and it's at the farm I, already, I, right? I, I would say there's a lot, of, a lot of guys that are probably booked. I hope so, but you just with it you seems never like know. diesel used to be about the same price as gas, if not less. And uh, yeah, no, it hasn't been just, that for a long time. No, nah, but it seemed like it at least be close. And, and mm, that, that was good. before you had a driver's license, Todd. Uh, th- this just seems off. Like yeah, it just be frustrating as a farmer to see what people are paying at the pump for gas, and then you're paying this on diesel, and it, it's just. Well, this is this is road. Gas too. Right. Farm diesel is going to be cheaper. Cheaper, yeah, but but still, it's yeah, it'll still go up. <laughs> it's just be yeah, it'll be going up, but it's still less than. It's the reason we don't see tractors rolling into gas stations most of the time to fill up. Yeah, why do we end on a low note? We gotta. It just sounds weird if we say that's corny, cool beans, but I don't know. This, Talk to the guy that wrote this episode. Yeah, this sandwich of like <laughs> a, have a positive thing and then always end on the downer. So I don't know about that. We got to come up with a new segment, man. Yeah, we should maybe do it. We got a good wrap. vibe like, of the week. We got to have the cool bean sandwich. So we have like a cool the, beans, the cool and bean then, sandwich. Then have a that's corny. And then wrap it up with another cool. The, pro- the only problem with that theory is some weeks it's really hard to find one cool it bean. It is. It is very. It is, and we're only 150 episodes in. So let's yeah. just you know. No, oh, that's two more we're episodes. Just figuring guys, it out now. Hit another hit another milestone. So really, really, check your math. All right. <clears throat> Thanks for being here, guys. That'll Thanks for having for us, week. Matt. Today we talked, when is my corn ready? We also looked at the new autonomous spreading from Case IH using Graven technology to the GDU update. And our cool beans was having a new four stack or quad stack soybean potential with a partnership between Corteva and BASF. And our That's Corny was diesel prices tracking back up. So thanks for listening. And as always, 
Happy farming.